Oh, how true that he would be our heart's obsession. That's our prayer. We want to welcome our Lexington and Shelby campuses this morning. Thanks for being with us. Those of you online, can we give them a hand? We appreciate you. We love you over there. Lexington and Shelby. And those of you joining us online, maybe you couldn't be with us. We're glad to have you. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. Uh, here at Park Avenue as well as every campus, you can turn with us to page 995. 2 Timothy chapter 2 page 995. We're in the series called Legacy, and we've been talking about what does it look like to leave and live a godly legacy. I remember back when my, my boys were about, about six years old, uh, we decided to have a little birthday party for them at our house, and it was a, a time where we thought it was about the age where they could have a sleepover. And so it was going to be a, their first sleepover with other kids coming over. And so we invited a bunch of other guys in our church and friends in school and different things and said, hey, we're going to have a big sleepover and just play some games and have some party and just have some cake and enjoy each other. And so uh, we had some, some friends come over and stay. And, and when they came over, uh, there was a lot of different games we kind of had set up. One of the things that my boys loved to do when they were little, you know, five or six years old, they loved to do this thing that we called flippity doodah. Now, that's what you do as a parent, right? You take games and you give them silly names for a lot of fun. And so we named this thing flippity doodah. And what it was was I would take the boys and I would have them hold onto my arm with their fullest strength and I would take their legs and I would flip them over my arm. And so we called it flippity doodah. Because that's what you do. You make a silly name out of it. And so I uh, would flip them over, and then they would land on their feet. And so the boys were like, Dad, can we do flippity doodah? And of course, this is the dad moment. All these little guys running around. I'm like, absolutely. And so I said, grab on. And I started flipping them around. And, and uh, I did my first son, and then I did my second son, again, six years old. And then this little boy came up to me, and he goes, hey, hey, can I do flippity doodah too? And I was like, absolutely. Just make sure you hold on tightly. That's the key. You gotta hold onto my arm tightly. And so I took his legs and I flipped him in the air. Now, as I flipped him up, I knew I had an issue. Because this kid was like 20 pounds lighter than my other my kids. And so he didn't just flip over my arm, he did a one and a half over my arm, which meant his head was directly toward the ground, and then he decided to let go and he crashed his head on the floor with great force. Now immediately I kind of picked him up, I'm like, are you okay, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm, I was afraid I killed this kid at a sleepover, the first sleepover he had with our boys. And I'm looking, I'm like, are you okay? And he's just holding his head, and you could tell he was dazed. And he, he made it through the night, everything was fine. His mom shows up to ping him up the next morning, and uh, you know, we explain what happened. And, and as they left, she kind of gave me that look, that mama bear look like, how could you do this to my baby? And I wanted to say, well, why do you make so light babies? I didn't say it because I knew the pain. You know, isn't it true? Isn't this true? It is very difficult to hand something you hold very valuable over to somebody else. Isn't it true? Remember that first sleepover? You have kids. Remember when you first dropped them off? It's very hard, very difficult to hand something you hold very valuable over to somebody else. This is true of life, is it not? I mean, think about when your child goes to kindergarten. If, you're, if you have children, remember when they dropped them off for the first time at kindergarten class? 
and there was this like excitement, like yes, go to school, and yet there was this, this melting of your heart that you're dropping your kid off and you're releasing them into what that could look like and what it would be like. Uh, or how about when you drop them off to college? I remember when our oldest son, this is three years ago, we dropped them off at college for the first time, Cedarville University. There was a bet in our, in our family, specifically among the guys, as to how long it would take until mom would cry. And so we take our oldest son and we drop him off, we move him in, we have dinner with him, and then we get in the van to leave. And so far, mom has not dropped a single tear. And we get in the van, and as I begin to pull away from Cedarville University, I remember as I'm driving, tears just begin to stream down my face, and I am sobbing. And my sons look at me and say, Dad, we didn't bet on you for this. <laughs> or how about if you're, you're a dad here who gave your daughter away in marriage. Remember that day when you gave your daughter away, and, and there was something about that moment as you, as you walked her down the aisle in that beautiful white dress and you gave her away. Well, isn't it true in life, right? We, we have a very difficult time handing something of great value over to somebody else. I want you to think about that. If you get that framework, you understand the message of 2 Timothy. What Paul is saying is, is, Timothy, my young protege, I've invested my life in this gospel cause. I have built churches. I have tried to be a part of building the kingdom of God. And yet now I'm going to hand this over to you. Why? Because I'm about ready to die. Paul was sitting in a prison, and he's passing this last will and testament on to his young protege, his young student, Timothy. And he's saying, listen, I'm passing on to you something valuable, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The, the foundation of the church. I'm passing this to you, Pastor Timothy, and I need you to lead this well. And today, we reap the benefits of people that have lived that legacy well. They have handed down something very valuable to us. And as we've been journeying through this, this letter, we have found really some pinnacle things that we ought to take delight in. For example, he says in chapter one, Timothy, fan the flame of the gift of God in you. He says at the end of chapter one, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We then looked last week at this picture that he gave of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, and we said that in that culture there was persecution that was rising, and many people were throwing in the towel. Many people were saying, listen, I don't know if I can keep going. And Paul writes and says, Timothy, do not give up. Don't throw in the towel. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. Keep going. The benefit is yet to come. Do not give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give in to failure. Don't give in to frustration. Don't give in to fatigue. Don't give in to fear. We said last week, uh, we talked about the fact that in the next 30 years of Christianity, 42 million people will actually walk away from the church. 42 million people who, who kind of grew up in the church or knew the church and know Christ will walk away from the faith, walk away from Christ. And so we talked about the importance of not giving up. Now, I want you to think about this. If these things are true, if God is passing down to you and I now the legacy of faith, the legacy of the gospel, the legacy of the church, the, the question then comes, if we don't throw in the towel and we keep enduring, then how am I useful for God? What is it that makes me available to God for his use? Like maybe you're here this morning and you're like, Dave, I don't have a lot of gifts and abilities. I don't have much to offer. I get that the legacy is passed on to me, but I don't have these great gifts. I can't sing. I can't speak. I'm not very good at these things. So what is God looking for in usefulness in us? If we're going to be passing a legacy, how do I become useful to the legacy of the gospel that God is calling me to? And that's exactly what Paul does next. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible 
is that the Bible actually predicts what we're going to think. Like, God knows us better than we know ourselves, right? We're going to hear chapter 2 where it says, don't give up. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. And then he knows we're going to say, well, how am I going to be useful if I'm enduring this? How am I going to be useful as a soldier? How am I going to be useful as an athlete? How am I going to be useful as a farmer? And so Paul writes these next words of Timothy. Take a look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 14. It says, remind them of these things. By the way, notice it says them. Uh, it's all been written to Timothy, and now he says, remind them. Remind the church. Remind other believers these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who's no, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius and Philitus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may per perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And I want to confess to you, as we dive into this text, this is not an easy text to grasp, and so we're going to walk through this. In fact, I would dare say through 2 Timothy, this may be the most difficult grasp, uh, text to be able to grasp, to understand. I, I almost turn this over to one of our teaching team members. That's what I normally do. If it's really tough, I give it to them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I told Pastor Josh or Shelby came, I was like, Josh, maybe you should preach this one, except he's got a baby on the way, and so he's at, at waiting for this baby to be born, and we're like, no, I'm not going to do that to you. Um, I used to give them the easy passage, and now I give them the hard passage. As we work through this, though, if we grasp what this says, this is pretty powerful. This really gives us insight into what God is looking for in a servant of him. If you want to be useful, this is what he's looking for. So what is it that God is looking for? I want to I take a look at what he says in verse 14. Notice what he says to begin this passage. He says, remind them of these things. You're never going to be useful for the, the sake of the gospel. You're never going to be useful for the kingdom of God if you don't first understand the foundation by which is the, this is built. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remind them of these things. Now the question is, what are these things? When you go back to verse 8 of chapter 2, he gives us the thing that this really matters, that really this is about. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am a suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Here is what he's saying. Remind them of the truth of the gospel. Remind them 
that Christ is risen from the dead and the word of God is not bound. We said last week that the throne is occupied and the tomb is empty. And he says, remind them of this. Now this is important. If you want to grow deeper in your faith, you know what actually growing deeper in your faith is? Growing deeper in your faith is not getting new knowledge. Growing deeper in your faith is actually growing deeper in the understanding that you have of what the gospel has done for you. This is why all through the scripture, if you read the Bible over and over and over again, it repeats itself to us. Why? To remind us of the things that matter. So he says, remind them of these things. Remind them that that Christ has emptied the tomb. Remind them that Christ is on the throne. Remind them that the word of God is not bound no matter what happens in life. Remind them of these things. Remind them of this truth. You and I, naturally, we don't forget Jesus, do we? I mean, if we're being honest, none of us here are like, well, I woke up today and forgot Jesus. If you know Christ, you don't forget Jesus. The, the issue is not forgetting. By the way, I think it's really interesting that, uh, that 3M Products produces over 50 billion of those little things we call sticky notes. 50 billion per year. By, they're banking on the fact that you and I forget quite often. They're over a billion dollar company. Why? Because they know we're going to forget things. And so they want you to use sticky notes. Put them on your computer screen, which is, I think it's funny. We take sticky notes and put them on the edges of our computer screen. Put them on our desks. Put them in our cars. Remember things. Right? We want to remember the things that matter. And so, hey, I got a doctor's appointment. I want to put a sticky note on the calendar. I'm going to put a sticky note in my car that says, make sure I tell my wife I love her. If you got to do that, that's probably a good sign you need some help. Right, you want to remember things. That's why you put the sticky notes. And so they make a, a whole business on the fact that you and I are going to forget. Now, you and I probably don't wake up and go, I forgot Jesus today. But what happens is, it's not that we forget Jesus. It's that Jesus brings us into this relationship with him, and then we kind of move on to other things, don't we? He brings us into relationship with him, and then we move on to other things that really don't matter. So the picture of this is we enter through the door, Jesus, but we never enter into the kitchen or the living room. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having somebody over to your house and saying, hey, come on over, and they walk in the entryway of the door, and you say, welcome to our house, this is it. And you never then guide them back into your living room or kitchen. For many of us, that's exactly the way we live our faith. We've entered through the door into the foyer or the foyer of our faith. We've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we never let him then guide us into the deeper, the deeper understanding of the gospel by living out this gospel in the kitchen or in the living room. That's the picture he gives. He says, remind them of these things. They're not, gonna, they're not forgetting Jesus. They're, they're not seeing the, the glories of the house. They're not seeing the glories of what God wants to do in their life. And so he says, remind them. Rem- remind them of this truth constantly. Now what he does over the next few verses is he begins to give command after command after command. In fact, there are six imperatives, six commands that this first command, remind them, is then followed by. And the focus of these commands, I believe, is found on usefulness. Let me show you what I mean. Notice verse 14. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good. Notice that phrase, does no good. The word there is literally, it's worthless. He's saying it's useless. If you're arguing about words and disputing, it is useless. Now go down to verse, the verse uh, 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Notice the repetition in verse 14, 
Don't dispute about things that don't matter. Why, they're useless. And then he comes back and he says, and this is what it looks like to be useful. This whole text is all about being useful for God's purposes, being useful in the church, being useful for the gospel purpose that he's reminding them of. So what does it look like to be useful? I want to look at really three points that I think we get right from the text that give us insight into what it looks like to be useful for the kingdom's sake. Number one, we want to be a people. If you want to be useful, we got to be a people diligent in the scripture by focusing on what matters. We want to be a people that focuses on what matters. Now, if you notice, right in verse 14, right from the very beginning, he says, remind them and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, words which are useless, but only ruins the hearers. There is clear indication that this church, the church of Ephesus, the church that Timothy is pastoring, is disputing about things that really don't matter. They're not focused on the things that matter. So Paul here, as a typical preacher does, he makes a statement, and then he goes off the statement, and then he comes back to the statement. He says, you're disputing. And they're disputing about things that don't matter. Charge them about this. Now, you and I, when we think about disputing, we, don't, we think of simple things, don't we? Uh, we don't dispute about big things, and we're not a church of dispute here, but there are many that are disputing things, and we dispute things that really don't matter, like is a hot dog a sandwich or not? It's a big question. Does relish go on a hot dog? If fruit could fight, which one would win? It's a big question. Is it soda or is it pop? Star Trek or Star Wars, Android or iOS, New York-style pizza or Chicago-style pizza, toilet paper over or under, like, that's big. Marriages have fallen apart because the toilet paper wasn't put in the right place and the right way. Or, or you know, a couple years ago, there was a big debate about, is the dress blue or is it black? Is it white or is it gold? And people disputed about that. I mean, it was all over the internet. It was a craze. Can I tell you something that's true, by the way, in Christianity? Christianity actually opens us up to disputes. Did you know that? Being a Christian actually opens us up to have disputes. Why? Because in Christianity, there are no our types of people. There are no our types of people. In Christianity, we all come from different shapes, different sizes, different backgrounds, different, different experiences, and we come together in this thing called the body of Christ. We have different stories, different ways that God brought us out. Now, all of us have two things in common. We know we're a sinner and that we've been saved by a Savior who came and died for us and rose again for us. That's the only thing we have in common. But there's a lot of differences. There are no our type of people in the body of Christ. All that we have in common is Christ. And so it opens us up for disputes. It opens us up to these things. Now, notice where Paul goes next, verse 16. So he says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread. Notice verse 23. He comes back to it again. This is repetition here. This is emphasis. Verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He says, here's the problem. All of these disputes are now coming out in words. By the way, I love this word, irreverent babbling. The word in Greek is the word babelos, or babelus. And I love this because to babble is actually a poetic, what, a word we call onomatopoeia. Now onomatopoeia is, a, if you ever remember English class, onomatopoeia is a, is a word that sounds like it is. So think about the word babble. It's kind of cool. Say babble multiple times. Babble, 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 babble. 
It sounds like babbling, doesn't it? Because it's an onomatopoeia word. And so, and we think of that, and we think of babies, right? Think about the word babble sounds like the word baby. And that's how I remembered it in the Greek, babelos, was because there was kind of a baby to it. And babies babble. Babble, babble, babble. And what happens? They babble, and then we say, they just said dad. They just said dad. Babble, babble. That's dad. That was dad. Babble. Babble's dad. This word literally means worthless chatter, ungodly chatter. In fact, he puts two words together. He's irreverent babble is actually two kind of words. He's talking about this idea of empty chatter, this empty babbling. It doesn't have anywhere. Now, you and I know, it, it, you've been around enough to know that, that these tongues are powerful, aren't they? Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who give life will love will eat of its fruits. You, you and I, you and I, these tongues are powerful. Words can create and destroy, heal and crush, build up or tear down. Words can give life or take life. It, the tongue has this power. We've all heard the expression, Sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us. It's untrue. Words cut deep. Words are like a weapon that sliced people into ribbons. It can devastate marriages. It can break apart children's lives. It can damage families and churches and friendships. It has enormous power. It can destroy souls. And you and I, for being honest, have all been not only victims, but causes of the tongue's power. I mean, think about it, a, a hasty, unthoughtful word, a, a proud word, a selfish word, a self-serving exaggeration, a sly suggestion, a, a manipulative flattery, a word of anger, a word of slander, harmful gossip, an innuendo, a word of doubt, competitive words, impure words, words that inflict guilt and shame. Right? We've all said these words, words that are harsh in criticism. We can go on and on with a list of the way our words have power. Now here... It goes a little bit deeper than that because these words are actually a debate, a dispute about theological things. Take a look at what it says. Verse 17, it says, these ones that are irreverent and babbling, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. That word swerve literally means like an arrow. It misses the mark. They are missing the mark. They've swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, we don't really have this debate today, but in their day, especially in the Greek culture, the Greeks taught that the body was evil, but the spirit is good. And so the idea of salvation was, well, you're spiritually saved. Internally, you're okay, but this body is evil. And so there were different ideas about it. First of all, some would say, well, your body's evil. Don't worry about it. Just give in to it because it doesn't really matter. It's not who you really are. Others would say, no, 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 you need to beat the body down because this body is evil. And so you have to discipline. you got to beat it. you got to literally, people would whip themselves. And so there was these different ideas when it came to the body. These men were teaching, hey, okay, you got Jesus. That's fine. But the resurrection has already happened, meaning physical resurrection, the body you're in now is the physical resurrection. So your spirit has been redeemed, that's fine, now your body. And so they were, what they were saying is there's no more physical resurrection, the future hope of physical resurrection isn't true, your body's already resurrected. This is as good as it gets. So they were teaching your best life is today, which is not the gospel. The gospel says our best life is yet to come in eternity when we enter with Christ, when we die. die is dying is a gift, why? We get to enter eternity and be with Christ. And by the way, this is one of the truths, the foundations of our faith, isn't it? The foundation of our faith is that Jesus walked out of a grave. And guess what that means? Is that not only are we saved spiritually, but we're also saved physically. 
You know, a lot of people think this. They think, well, well, listen, this body, it's an envelope, and that's true. It's going to die. It's going to be put in the ground. But guess what? The gospel tells us, 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter that Paul writes on this to say that our bodies actually one day will be resurrected. That gives us hope. That means these crusty, old, broken-down bodies, not only are we saved spiritually, but this broken-down body will one day be resurrected and will be made new, and it will be united with our spirit which is with God. Now, how that's going to look and what that's going to be like, I have no clue. But the Bible tells us we are not only saved spiritually, we are actually saved physically. This body becomes the temple of God, and as it dies, it becomes the dust of the ground again. God will one day resurrect it, and it will be made new. That's the hope that you have. Think about that. Isn't that glorious? That this body will one day be made new. Now, again, that's a bit of a mystery. But here, they're coming in saying, no, it's already happened. Your best life is right now. There's no future resurrection going to happen. This is it. This is as good as it gets. So he's saying, this is foolish. This is, this is vain babbling. Now, you and I, we, we don't doubt that, really. If you've been to a funeral, right, we talk about that. If it's a funeral for a believer, we talk about the fact there will be a resurrection one day. This is part of the hope that we have as Christians. But I want us to think about the way and the words that we use to say things that would be irreverent babbling that we should avoid. I want, to give you, I want to give you four kind of things that I think we hear in our Christian culture and in our culture as a whole that I think are irreverent and I think are actually babbling. They're, they're just leading to more ungodliness. They don't, they don't actually work. First of all, we say this. We, we, many of people live a life and speak a language of what I would call comparison-based faith. Comparison-based faith. What do I mean? They are living their life by comparing their faith to other people. And so many people in their language, they speak this. They say, well, well, I, did you see so-and-so? I mean, did you, did you see what they were wearing? Can you believe they said this? Did you see how fast they were driving? Did you hear about their marriage? Did you hear about that kid? Now, I thought my kids were bad, but those kids? <laughs> what do we do? We're trying to increase our faith by comparing our life to everybody else. And what happens is gossip and slander begin to creep in. And so many people, they, they speak the language of competitive style faith. They, they're competing with other people. They're comparing against other people. And they think that's going to grow their faith. All that does is draw you farther away from the person of Christ. All that does is draw you away. It is irreverent babble. Secondly, there are some that focus on things that don't matter. There's a language that many of us speak where we focus on things that don't actually matter. Some of these things are personal opinions. I Man, I was just asked yesterday, I was linked on this Facebook thing, and the question was, should we worship with the lights out or on? And it became a big debate, on or off, and everybody's giving their opinion. Does it really matter? Whether, I mean, I mean, in the end, should we be talking about whether lights are on or off? Now, again, there's preferences, there's opinions, and opinions are good. I remember uh, in, when I, the church I pastored in Maryland, it was a building, not quite a warehouse, but it was an old church, but it was contemporary inside, and so it was very similar to who we are. And I remember having somebody come to me, and they said, Dave, Pastor Dave, we'd love to have stained glass windows. Nothing wrong with stained glass windows. Like, we're not going to build a stained glass window just because somebody has an opinion about a stained glass window. But that was the idea. And people begin to build their life on opinions. And there's a lot of different opinions. And people can argue over these things. The color of carpets. Now, we don't do that here, but you've heard of that, those stories in churches. Whether the chairs should be a certain color, the, the color of the walls. or the color. And the question becomes, does this really matter in eternity? 
Like, does it really matter? These type of things. And so we can dispute about personal opinions. We can dispute about political leanings. By the way, I'm not saying there should not be political stances on certain issues. We are pro-life. We are pro-marriage between a man and a woman. These things are true. We stand for those. They're in our doctrinal statement. We believe those things. Does that mean that we drive our ship on political leanings, though? No. We look for biblical truths that we dive into that we want to lean on. And so many people, they find their faith connected to their political leanings. Or how about trendy theology? I meet this all the time, especially, and sometimes even here. There are people that are checked into everything. So they're reading the Bible, and everything is a high priority. Everything in the Bible, they have to know. And so I've had people come and ask me, Dave, what does this Greek word mean? Do you see that? What does that mean? And I say, well, that's the word and. <laughs> and, and they're like, no, 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 no. But what does it mean behind it? Like, like, what is the secret meaning of the word and? And I'm like, and. I mean, it's language. I mean, it doesn't really have a secret meaning. And so people read the Bible to try to find this hidden secret meaning about the things of, of the Scripture. And so they begin to debate things that don't matter. I have people who come up to me and say, Dave, did Adam have a belly button? I don't care. I don't. When you get to heaven, you can walk up to him and touch his belly and ask him. I mean, that's awkward, but I'm not going to do that. And then I tell them, hey, make sure you come tell me, though, when you're done. Or, or we laugh about that, but there's other things, right? Like, when is Christ going to return? Dave, the blood moons, like there's been blood moons recently. I can't be honest, if you track it back, there have been blood moons for the last 2,000 years that have happened through a cycle. Oh, Dave, there's the fig tree, the, the, the parable of the fig tree. Like, there was a fig tree that grew in Israel at this certain spot. It's got to be a sign. And the truth is, yes, it could be. There are signs that are constantly happening of the coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, we're going to talk about this next week because chapter 3 gets into that. A little commercial to come back. We're going to talk about this because there are signs that give us the indication of the coming of Jesus Christ. But does it really matter about the signs or should we make ourselves ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? You see what I'm saying? What do we really focus on? There are other things like people look at, hey, Ezekiel's wheel on the wheel. Dave, there's a rise in UFO sightings. I believe that the wheel on the wheel was an, was an alien and that aliens are actually something that's really going to happen. And maybe it will. I, I don't know. I'm not that smart. I don't study aliens. We just got to proclaim the gospel and know the truth and understand the word of God. What happens in these things, and there are many of these examples, seasons and times, and you're trying to find this hidden meaning and you're attaching your growth of faith to a hidden meaning that you're going to find in the scripture and it's useless. It's irreverent babbling. It doesn't really matter to the heart of what this message is supposed to be about. It doesn't build anybody up. It doesn't stir anybody up. It doesn't lead anybody who's going to hell. It doesn't build a disciple. It's irreverent. It doesn't make sense. And we dive into those things that really don't matter. And all it makes us is theological eggheads. We make Christianity a crusty, stale formula instead of a dynamic experience that we live out in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make sure you understand, I am not saying there's not value to knowledge. I went to seminary, I have a doctorate of ministry degree, I think there's value in theology, I've studied it, I love it. But I had a professor of mine, a great professor, he's now a professor at Master's Seminary in California, he's a professor of mine at Capital Bible Seminary in Washington, D.C. The guy was brilliant, he has written many books, he was uh, my systematic theology professor, and, he, and when I graduated, he said to me this, he said, Dave, I know your calling is to be a pastor, but here's what I want to remind you, everything you've learned here has been a tool. Use the tool, but forget the details. Forget about it and go love people and preach the gospel well. Preach the word of God faithfully. 
Don't worry about all these other things that you try to figure out. I, I was an academic kind of guy. I loved in, uh, intellectual things. I loved to study these things. But in the end, if, if I just take it at that value, I haven't grown my faith at all. All I've done is have irreverent babbling. These things that really don't matter. These things that lack focus. And so he said, go and lead people to the cross. Lead people to the empty tomb. Let them know the gospel message. That's what it's about. When you stand before God, that matters. Thirdly, there are some that see truth is how I see it. This is what I call truth is how I see it. What does that mean? Well, there are people that actually read the scripture and they say, well, what does this say to me? What does this say to me? Now, it's not wrong to ask that question if we've done proper interpretation. I'm gonna talk about that in a moment just briefly. But truth is how I see it. It's the idea that we live in a culture where the words it's not true are not acceptable, right? You can't say in our culture it's not true. People are offended if you say it's not true. Why? Because we live in a more relative culture that we believe everything is true. So truth for you is whatever you want it to be, truth for me is whatever I want it to be for me. Can I tell you, relative truth doesn't work in life, does it? Can you imagine somebody walking up to you and saying, hey listen, gravity is true for you, but gravity is not true for me, and I'm gonna jump off the roof. I can tell you they're gonna meet gravity. Like it doesn't work for anything else in life. Can you imagine going to your spouse, honey? The truth is, I don't think you're very beautiful, but I love you. Can you imagine? I mean, right? I, I define truth as whatever I want. Well, I meant that good, right? Because it's truth for me. It's true. And so you got to accept that. Like, this doesn't work in relationship. This idea of truth is whatever you want just doesn't work. That was a bad example because, and that's not true. I'm just giving an example. We can, it doesn't work in any other relationship, does it? And yet we say truth is whatever you want. There's got to be absolute truth. There's got to be a standard of truth. And so you can't just read the Bible and say, well, truth is whatever I want it to be. No, no, truth is what's written. And then we have to understand that truth well. And lastly, there's a do whatever I want mentality. We live in a culture that says, well, listen, I'm going to interpret the Bible the way I want to interpret the Bible. And I'm going to justify my living whatever way I want. And people speak this language even in the church world. I'm going to justify my behavior without any boundary. I'm going to reinterpret scripture to say what I want it to be. While the previous people would say uh, they really believe they're following the truth, they actually believe they are, these people know they're not following the truth. And they say, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to justify my identity. I'm going to justify my relationships. I'm going to justify my decisions. I'm going to justify my choices. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. I'm going to do whatever I want. Now, I want to show you here, and I can go much deeper in all of those things, but I want to show you his reaction to these things. Notice verse 14. Do not quarrel about words like this, which does no good. The word there is useless. Notice what he says in verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It's actually going to lead them worse. And then he says, verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. I probably don't have to convince you that gangrene is pretty nasty. It's a disease that causes death to the tissues of the body. I remember uh, years ago, uh, back when my kids were really little, um, we just had had our second son, uh, I had what I thought was uh, appendicitis. I was running a high fever and had severe pain, and I went to the hospital, and they decided to take out my appendix, only to find out that it wasn't my appendix. It was something called the omentum. Now, if you're a doctor or you're a nurse, you probably have heard of that. Many doctors have never even experienced that. And so I became a medical marvel immediately. Doctors said, you're going to be in a medical journal somewhere. So somewhere along the line, I'm in a medical journal because my, my omentum, which is a 
an organ that goes throughout your abdomen, wherever you have an infection, it covers it. My omentum had twisted up, and, and part of it had died, and it became gangrene. And so they had to go in and take out my omentum. It's a pretty cool thing. And so they had to cut me open and take out my omentum because it was, it was infectious. So I want to show you a picture of what gangrene looks like. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I saw some of you get real nervous, like you turn white, like I can't see, I can't look. I'm not going to show you that. But, but I get the picture, right? Gangrene, we don't, we don't have to paint a picture of gangrene. We all know it's nasty. He says, listen, this type of talk, it's like gangrene. It's infecting things. It's not helping things. It's not going, taking things forward. In fact, I want you to notice what he says. So what do we do? Verse 16, avoid it. That's the calling he gives to us. He says our response is that we avoid those words. We avoid them. The word avoid there literally means don't stand around them. Don't be around these type of irreverent babblings. Don't be around these type of words that are useless. Instead, we find the answer in verse 15. Take a look at what he says. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. He says, here's instead, be diligent. Instead, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How do we do that? A worker who does not be ashamed. We are to be diligent, keeping something until it is accomplished. Be diligent to be approved unto God. Now think about that. Anything of value takes diligence, doesn't If you want to find a pearl, it's buried in the rocky depths of the sea. If you want to have gold, it's imprisoned in the, in the rocky heart of the mountains. If you want to have a gem, you've got to find the rock and crush the rock to get to the gem. If you want to uh, uh, plant seeds, you've got to dig the soil, right? Anything of value takes diligence. If, if you, you need a nut, you've got to find it hidden in a car, hard shell, and sometimes that nut is worthless. Buckeyes. Oh, that, that didn't work very well right there. <laughs> Isn't it true that anything of value takes diligence? So he says, here's instead, don't speak irreverent babbling. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. What do we do? A worker doesn't need to be ashamed. Why? Because we are rightly dividing the word of truth. I love this word, rightly dividing. It's the word orthotomanta. Orthotomanta. And literally means ortho, which means straight, right? Orthodontics, they make our teeth straight. Orthopedics, they make our bones straight. He says orthotomanta, or mounta. It literally means to make straight, to cut straight. Tomanta means to cut. He says to make sure you cut the word of God straight. Make sure you're rightly dividing the word of truth. Don't, don't be about irreverent babbling. Don't speak words that are foolish. Instead, make sure you're cutting the word of God straight. We as a church want to be a church that cuts the word of God straight. What does that mean, to cut the word of God straight? It means that I'm going to make sure when I study the word, I am being faithful to what it says. I'm being faithful to the text. I want to give you three thoughts here. How do we do that? And this is a little bit of thoughts of interpretation, a little bit of depth here, but, but this is the way we interpret the scripture. First of all, it, it, there's, there's observation. Observation, what is the scripture saying? I want to ask questions. Who is this text about? Who is it written to? Who is it by? Who, what, when, where, how, and why? If I answer those questions, I'm going to understand the text very well. Every text has a context. By the way, I say this to people all the time. Never read a verse again. Never read a verse again. Never read one verse again. Always read a verse in its context. There is a context by which this is written. Never take a verse out of that context. Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean literally? What does this text literally mean? By the way, we believe that the Bible is literal. 
You say, well, there's pictures and images. You know, every time the Bible brings up a picture or image, it always says, like or as. It always gives us the picture or image. And so if it talks about an image, it says, I saw this and it looked like this. Well, that's a simile. We have those in our language. And so I can take the Bible literally. There's no figurative language. And if it is figurative, we have hints as to why it's figurative. And it makes sense. And then lastly, application. What does this scripture mean to us today? Or literally, how do I apply it to my life? I want to understand the author's original intention, and now I want to build the bridge into the culture today. Now, very interestingly, I want to show you one such verse that we take out of context quite often. Philippians 4.13. You ever heard that phrase? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember when my boys were younger, and they were jumping on the trampoline, and my one son said, Dad, I think I can, I can do a double flip on the trampoline. And I was like, son, I, I don't know if you can even get one flip and land it. Like, how are you going to do a double flip? And then he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he had learned that verse. In his mind, he interpreted that to mean I can do anything I want. Why? Because Christ strengthens me. That's not the verse there. By the way, the context of that verse we see it on sneakers and t-shirts today. But you know the context of that verse is Paul is saying, as he's sitting in prison, he's saying, listen, I've been in life and I, I've succeeded and I've failed. I've been in life and I have, I have had and I have hadn't. I, I lost. He says, listen, I've, I've had success and I've failure. I, I've had possessions and I've had nothing. I've lacked greatly. And he says in both of those cases, I can get through it. Why? Because Christ is the one who strengthens me. That's what he's talking about. Whether I have or I don't have, whether I'm suffering or I'm, I'm doing well in life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. And yet we rip that verse apart in the context. That's the point here. Is I want to cut the word of God rightly. I want to make sure I'm being diligent to the word of God. I want to move on to number two. Number two is this point. After we know we're cutting the word of God rightly, number two is holy in life. We want to pursue Purity. And I want to end here. Pursue, pursue purity. It says, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Verse 20, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some of honorable, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteous faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from pure. He says there are good utensils and there are bad utensils. And there are utensils of honor that are useful for the kingdom. I want you to think about that in your house. There are things, if I were to come to your house, you would show me and say, Dave, I want to show you this. This is a pride possession. It was passed down for generations. If you come into my house today, my wife is going to show you her air fryer. She got this air fryer, and man, she makes these sweet potato fries with that thing, and they're healthy for you. Love the air fryer. Man, she will come, you come to my house, she's going to show you the air fryer. She's going to make some fries or make something in that air fryer. It's a cool new thing in our house. What I'm not going to show you is a garbage can. Like, I'm not going to take you to my house and say, hey, I want to show you my new garbage can. Why? Because it's nasty. It's a garbage can. That's the image here, right? Is, is God uses instruments that are cleansed. So what does he say? Verse 22. So flee youthful passions. 
Now, what he's not talking about is strictly sexual things. A lot of people take that this way. He's talking about disputes in this context. And so there are some that are disputing, and he says, flee the youthful passions to be right. Isn't it true? When we're younger, we want to be right. We want to fight the battle. We always want to win. And so we say things like, 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 you're wrong. We say things like, I'm rubber, you're glue. Anything that you say bounces off me and sticks to you. We say these things, and we say, no, you're wrong. You're always wrong, right? This is the image, right? He says, flee those youthful passions. By the way, this can overflow everything. It can overflow sexuality. It can overflow money and food and recognition and promotion and order, respect, status, materialistic goods. He says, flee youthful passions and then turn and run toward righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And he says, do this along those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, gather with other people who are going to remind you of the pursuit of purity so you can be an instrument ready for the kingdom of God. In fact, what he's saying here is an unclean life actually forfeits our usefulness for God. People are like, well, well, I want to be useful for God. Are you living a clean life? That's the question. That's what he's getting at. If you understand the word of God, you rightly divide the word of truth, you cut it straight, then you know it overflows the internal workings of your life. And so if you're caught up into sin or you're disputing things that don't matter, you're not going to be useful. There's no chance of it. And so it, it forfeits our opportunity to be useful to the kingdom of God. It diminishes our usefulness. And that leads to the final point, which is number three, faithful in service. Serving God's gospel purpose. So, I don't want you to miss how this is built. Avoid things that don't matter. Avoid irreverent babbling. Avoid irreverent controversies, things that just don't matter. Instead, be a vessel that's clean. Rightly divide the word of truth. Make sure you're in the scripture that gives us the way of life. Make sure that you're in the scripture and you're rightly seeing it. And then let it overflow to your life and cleanse you. And then what does he say? Notice verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach this gospel message, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. By the way, notice it says patiently enduring evil. I I never expect unbelievers to act, act like believers. I patiently endure evil. Because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, if I rightly divide the word of truth, you know what I keep coming back to over and over and over again? Is that the the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. I keep coming back to that over again, that the word of God is not bound. And so I rightly divide the word of truth. It keeps penetrating my heart. It now cleanses me. You might be here this morning and say, Dave, I still got, man, I feel like I'm constantly struggling. You run to the Lord. It says in 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is willing to make us a useful vessel. David prayed in Psalm 51 after a great sin. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, a renew a right spirit in me. And he goes on to say, so that I might be useful for you. God is able to cleanse us. And in the end, then we serve God's gospel purpose. See, see, we don't just say, well, I want to serve God's gospel purpose. It starts with, are we rightly dividing the literature? Do we get this great message of our rescue? Has it cleansed us from the inside and out? Has it transformed us? Has it, has it made us a vessel? Have we, have we fleed youthful passions and pursued righteousness, love, faith, and peace? Now we're useful. 
Now we're ready. And could it be that by our actions, someone sees us and says, wait, they react differently. And they come to the place of repentance and turn from their sinful ways to the person of Jesus Christ rescued. Let me ask you this morning, are you wrapped in trendy theology? Are you wrapped in just the details of hidden things that really don't matter? Are you wrapped in political leanings or personal opinions? Is that what your life has been about? He, he says here, remind them of these things, charge them of these things. Remember what this is about. Focus on the things that matter, not the things that are useless. Is your heart cleansed this morning by the work of Christ in you? We're going to pray, and then across every campus, uh, we're going to see this video that kind of just gives this portrayal of what it looks like to have a clean heart, a clean heart that makes us useful as a servant of our great King. Would you bow with me as we pray? God, I thank you for your word, this reminder. Lord, I, I know we all need this reminder. God, for your, your word to penetrate our hearts, to be diligent, to cut your word straight, to rightly divide it so that we are not ashamed, and yet we're not caught up in irreverent babbling. We're not caught up in useful, useless words. We're not caught up in useless disputes. We're not caught up in irreverent controversies, but we're caught up in the gospel message that you came, that you died, that you rose again, that you're coming again, that you've, the throne is occupied, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, may our minds be so preoccupied with that that then we can't help but to overflow our lives, our hearts, our souls, and cleanse us, cleanse us to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, pursue love, pursue faith, pursue peace, so that then those around us may see something different about us in a world filled with disputes. They see us and they go, wait, I got to have that. And they turn from their sinful way and they turn to you, Christ. They're rescued from the snare of the enemy that's held them captive. And they experience true freedom. God, may we live that way when we reflect that. Give us clean hands and a pure heart so that we may serve you. Create in us a clean heart so that we might be useful to your purpose. All for your name, Jesus Christ, we thank you and pray. Amen. I mean, watch this video.